going to be the opening text for today. Again, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start with Psalm 34. I actually have the words on the screen. So if you don't have your Bibles, we got slides this time. We are moving up. All right. Uh, Psalm 34. David writes this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Maybe you're hearing the Shane and Shane song in your head right now in a key that only angels can sing. Verse five, those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Many people attribute that verse to the work of Jesus, who had no bones broken, it is said on the cross. Verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. Verse 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. In this psalm, we're going to look at three characteristics of a worshiping church. Uh, but before we get started, I was preparing for this week, and I you know, sat down. I was at Indy, and actually Izzy was there, and uh, Ryan walked in, and I was uh, prepared to uh, have this meeting with, with someone at our church who's going through a really, really tough season. And uh, I opened up the chapter, and chapter three starts with Bob Coughlin's nervous breakdown. And uh, what was so telling about that was nearly everything he describes in the chapter felt exactly like what I've been walking through for the better part of two years. I, uh, two years ago, about two and a half years ago, I tore my ACL. Um, I, I had surgery right after, and uh, in the midst of early recovery, like weeks after my surgery, I was uh, preparing for our Christmas Eve services at the church I was at before. And I'm sitting in a cracker, actually I was sitting in a movie theater with my uh, brothers and my uh, nephews and my father, and I started feeling this pain in my chest. And I was like, that is really weird. Um, I tried to ignore it during the movie. It was one of the Star Wars movies, I think. Um, one, maybe one of the forgetful ones. And so I'm, I'm feeling it and, and it just doesn't feel right. And uh, I tried to ignore it. We were at Cracker Barrel afterwards and my vision starts going dark. And immediately I start, I start thinking, I am having a blood clot like that that this is what this feels like I've read the symptoms too many times this is not great and so I'm like I need some air and I go sit on one of those rocking chairs that a thousand people have sat in before me so they're nice and worn you know I'm sitting there and I'm like trying to breathe in and out and my chest starts feeling really 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 heavy so I call my doctor 
uh, doctor's office and they're like, well, we can't diagnose a clot on the phone. This sounds like clot-like symptoms and uh, we suggest you go to a hospital soon. So I call my dad and I'm like literally struggling to speak. And my dad's like, okay, let's go. So he comes out and he, he gets me to the car and I feel like I'm passing in and out as we drive. I've never seen my dad drive that fast. Um, even when we're late on a Sunday morning, it's the fastest my father's ever driven. We pull into the parking lot at the hospital and um, my, th- this guy on a, on a golf cart, bless his heart, is like, slow down. And my dad's like, oh, he wants to yell the F word, like, my son might be dying. And he uh, drives right past him. We can't find the emergency place. We finally find it. Uh, they load me out. Um, they run a bunch of tests, and I'm there overnight. Now, this is Christmas Eve Eve. We have five services uh, at the church we're at that, that weekend. And so I know that I have this huge load in front of me, but I feel, for the most part, prepared for it. Uh, felt like everything was under control. And so here I am until like midnight getting all these tests run and they do all these kind of tests where they put like the dye in your, in your blood and your veins so they can run some kind of scan. And I'm just there awake for all of it. And I'm calm because I feel like I'm in a hospital, but I'm also quietly freaking out. Jen thinks I've had a heart attack of some kind. My whole family's worried. And so in comes the doctor with his papers and he's like, so uh, we ran all the tests and uh, are you stressed? And I was like, I mean, I, I guess I, I just had surgery. He's like, uh, there's nothing medically wrong with you. The implication was, I think you're having a nervous breakdown. So I was like, uh, okay, uh, what does that mean? He's like, I think you should stay overnight and take it easy the next couple of days. And I was like, well, I can't I have to lead worship. And my boss who came to visit me that night was like, dude, you are not leading worship. There's no way. Like, you, you need to take care of yourself. Something's up. And so I'd love to tell you that after that, I went into counseling and everything was great. I didn't. I ignored it for the better part of two years until I hit a wall in December. And uh, in December, I realized uh, that I was going through these cycles of uh, self-destructive tendencies. And they would flare up. And I, I, I was no longer at a position where I had control. I never did have control. But I was no longer under the illusion of control. And I was at a point where I needed help desperately. So I started going to counseling. And since then, things have become much better. But the point was I needed to hit a wall to discover I was not in control. And I think as a result of that, uh, going through that and acknowledging that, I feel like a better worship leader. Because I've walked through that valley, I feel like I'm able to meet with people who are walking through their own valleys in a way I couldn't have before. And to me, this is a picture of the church. The irony was not lost on me that I was reading this chapter about Bob Coughlin, who's like amazing, sharing his struggles. I'm relating to that struggle as I'm about to meet with somebody who's walking through their own valley, who is also going to counseling and so on. And so what I realized in that moment as I was reading this psalm and preparing for the chapter is that this is a picture of the church. We are a community that shares wounds together. Jesus came to meet the broken. I'm going to put that on the screen for you because I think it's important. Jesus came to meet the broken, and every time we gather, we must start and end with an acknowledgement of our needs. Every time we gather. Uh, A couple weeks ago in my notes as I was preparing for seminary, I wrote down the phrase, holy discomfort. Our responsibility when we come to church, and it might seem counterintuitive, is to show up and and recognize our discomfort. None of us is ever 100% on board with the work of the kingdom or 100% after the heart of God. Every time we show up, we have an opportunity to conform. We're all people in progress, right? None of us has perfection to offer. Some of us realize that when we miss a drum fill or forget the lyrics, whatever that might be, we recognize that we are not perfect. 
And so we need to every Sunday remember that so that way it drives us to Jesus, the one who is perfect. We recognize our needs together. From this humility and vulnerability come three requirements or characteristics of a worshiping church. These are the three we'll look at today. A worshiping church is weeping, waiting, and working. Those are the three things we'll look at today. Weeping, waiting, and working. David's words in Psalm 34 are filled with things to weep over. Uh, He talks about fear, poverty, hunger. He expresses his tears, his despair, his sorrow, his afflictions. And he does all these things because God meets us in our pain. God meets us in our pain. This is why we need to be a weeping church. And we all want to be joyful. Right? We, we know that there is joy within us, and yet we live in a time and we walk through our own struggles where we know that weeping is a part of this journey. This is important for us to recognize and not to hide. Second Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. The very thing that David is expressing tears over in Psalm 34, Jesus took on so that by his poverty we might become rich. God meets us in our need. This is, of course, called incarnation, right? That God, uh, in, the Son of God, takes on our suffering. He sees it. He comes to it. He is a presence in our pain. You know, the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, blessed are the poor, blessed are the heartbroken. All this pain, if you read those, he is talking about people, but all those are things that Jesus took on for us. This is why those people, which include us, are blessed. Because blessing means to be filled with, with God's presence. We are blessed in our pain to know that Jesus is with us. Coughlin has a great question in chapter 3. He says that we're to ask, where is God in this? If we don't ask that question on a Sunday morning, we have shut our eyes to the needs around us and the needs we have. We should be asking all the time, where is God in this? In joy and pain. Where is God in this? In my joy right now, how can this be a reflection of God? In my pain, how can this drive me to see the heart of Jesus for me? This is Jesus' work, and it becomes ours too as the body of Christ. I was watching a movie for a seminary called Of Gods and Men, and it's a story about these uh, monks, these uh, priests in uh, Algeria during a time of uh, terrorism and some pretty brutal, brutally violent attacks. And so they uh, eventually are martyred. It's, it's not a spoiler alert. It's just a really good movie. But at one point, the priest talks about the work that uh, all Christians are called to. And I love this quote. I had to write it down. Jesus Christ beckons us to be born. Our identities as men go from one birth to another. And from birth to birth, we'll each end up bringing to the world the child of God we are. The incarnation for us is to allow the filial reality of Jesus to embody itself in our humanity. That's a really fancy quote. I can't believe it was in a script. Of course, it's a French movie. But it says the incarnation is for us to allow the reality of Jesus to embody itself in our humanity. The incarnated Savior comes to establish an incarnated church, a spirit-filled and spirit-led body. The church cannot be invisible to itself. It must acknowledge its pain, our pain. We need to see and be seen. The Bible is filled with some great passages about seeing. I love Psalm 77 verse 4. I sent this to Ryan this week. You hold my eyelids open. I love that. It's like, no, God, I will not look for you. No, you hold my eyelids open. Sometimes I need that. 
I need that a lot. Who am I, who am I kidding? Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. You can't do either of those things if your eyes are shut. We are called to open our eyes. Weeping to God is more than a relief mechanism. We don't come to church just to cry to feel better, right? Even though that, that is often a byproduct of it. Weeping together is an expression of trust, faith, and relationship. We believe God will hear us, that there is somebody on the other end of this line that we cry to. Weeping is an expression of trust. Psalm 77, that same psalm uh, where he pries our eyes open, starts like this. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. I love this. I was reading, uh, studying on lament, and uh, Glenn uh, Pemberton has a great book on lament. If you're ever looking for one, I can recommend it to you. But he says this, the practice of lament which is bringing our sorrows to God, hinges on two related relational risks. Number one, am I prepared to risk everything in this relationship, including the risk of speaking the truth of my life and experience? It's a risk, right? Bringing your tears to anybody is a risk. If you've ever been wounded in a relationship or felt wounded and you've gone to that person, you know it's a risk. They might not receive you. So you are risking the foundation of that relationship. And two, am I ready to risk reliance on God to expect something of him? Relationships carry with them expectations. And so if you don't bring your tears to God, what do you expect of him? Really? He's just in, he's kind of absentee. He's floating there. You don't have the kind of relationship with him where you can be honest. Now, weeping in church is not an individual complaint. It's corporate catharsis. We take something all people do. Everybody weeps inside and outside of the church. Everybody cries. Everybody is broken. We take something all people do, but in relationship with God, it is transformed. Jesus takes on our sorrow and we are made into his body. Um, You might recognize this as the language of sacrament in which something very normal is filled with the presence of God becomes more than itself becomes supernatural. I love this Psalm 137, one through six. This is Corporate gathering around sorrow, one by the waters of Babylon. There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres. For there, lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the root of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. We remember the foundations of relationship when we weep together and we look ahead to the promise. The same God who was God before will be God, is God right now. And we trust that when we bring these expressions to him. That psalm says, we wept. We remembered our captors. How shall we sing our, our sorrow together is swallowed up by Christ's death just as our hope pours from his resurrection. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We are waiting for that day even as we walk through our sorrow-filled days right now. Weeping in the body of Christ is a sacramental activity. It is transformative and it is also formative. It sets us up for the next characteristic of a worshiping church, which is waiting. How many of y'all were there Sunday morning? We read Psalm 42. And one of the things we talked about in, in the worship time together was that image, Psalm 42, as a deer panteth for the waters on my soul, longeth after you. That image of a deer has to lower its head, right? It has to be made vulnerable to drink of the living water. 
and, and deer don't have many defense mechanisms. I mean, they might fight each other, you know, the ones with the, the big bucks might bat away somebody, but for the most part, they really don't have a ton of defense mechanisms but to run. And so to drink is an expression of trust. I'm going to be made vulnerable in this moment. I'm going to trust that God is here with me. Another thing that we can take from that analogy that David paints is that deer gather together. It's foolish to be alone or to stray. And so uh, this is for us. We often see suffering as a desert, but for Christians, it's a watering hole. God meets us here together. We drink together. We come to the watering hole to experience the living water, to have our thirst um, not quenched forever, but met by God as his body. You know, sometimes this happens right away. And more often than not, we wait together, right? The rest of Psalm 34, it says that we hear, we seek, we cry. All these are things that wait for God. Um, You know, it's often said that we live in the already and the not yet. That we know that that God is faithful, that Jesus is coming again, and yet we wait for him right where we're at. That we carry the, the resurrected son in his spirit within us, and yet we still struggle with sin. Our flesh still uh, wants to do what it does. I, I forget if it was Luther or Calvin, but one of them said, you know, the old Adam is drowned in baptism, but he's a really good swimmer, right? Like that's kind of where we're at. We, we live in that middle ground. And see, God works in the waiting. As we wait, we are preparing and learning and growing. We are cultivating the fruits of the Spirit together. This is done the moment you wake up on a Sunday. I love the way chapter 4 ends. He's got a list of things we can do as we come together. And the first one is be on time. The first one is be on time. I was like, oh, seriously, Bob Coughlin? Like, come on. Obviously, a white guy wrote this book. So... So uh, he says it starts as soon as you wake up. We've, we've got a friend uh, at church, and I always tease her about being late. And so, I, you know, you're leading worship, and the stage is elevated. You can see people walking in. And so more often than not, when she's late, I can see her walking in with her Bible, and she's done <laughs> covering her face as she walks to her seat. I'm like, God can still see you. It's fine. <laughs> this is what Alexander Schmemann says. I love this, and uh, I thought it was worth reading at length. The journey, Shmemon. What a, everybody say Shmemon. What a cool name. Or maybe not. Maybe it's like so uncool it is cool. Anyway, old Russian Orthodox priest. If you ever get a chance for the life of the world, incredible book. This is what he says. The journey begins when Christians leave their homes and beds. They leave indeed their life in this present and concrete world. And whether they have to drive 15 miles or walk a few blocks, a sacramental act is already taking place. An act which is the very condition of everything else that is to happen. For they are now on their way to constitute, to become the church, or to be more exact, to be transformed into the church of God. They have been individuals. Some white, some black, some poor, some rich. They have been the natural world in a natural community. And now they have been called to come together in one place. To bring their lives, their very world with them. And to be more than what they were. A new community with a new life. We are already far beyond the categories of common worship and prayer. The purpose of this coming together is not simply to add a religious dimension to the natural community, to make it better, more responsible, or more Christian. The purpose is to fulfill the church. And that means to make present the one in whom all things are at their end and all things are at their beginning. Holy cow. I mean, how can, how can you wake up the same after reading something like that? Like, worship starts when you wake up. As soon as you wake up on a Sunday, you are on your way to see the body of Christ 
visible, physical, tangible. What a powerful thing. This is done every time we gather together as we practice God together, as we play God, not in the negative sense, but we are putting on the clothes that are not ours, the identity that is now ours as we practice the fruits of the Spirit. This means we see needs, we offer needs, we meet needs, we have our needs met. Every Sunday is a chance to exchange God's goods. I didn't write that up there, but you might want to write that down. Every Sunday is a chance to exchange God's goods. Sunday mornings are a holy marketplace for God's people. This is backed up by scripture. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Colossians 3, 16 puts it this way. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How often do we show up to church with the wrong question? What do I need today? We show up with empty hands. And actually what we should be doing is showing up with our hands full, ready to give away and to receive. We are in a holy dialogue with God and a holy dialogue with his body. Tish Harrison Warren puts it like this in her book, Liturgy of the Ordinary, which is amazing. All of you should read it um, or you're off the team. I'm just kidding. Tish Harrison Warren says this. These Christians around me become each other's call and response. We remind each other of the good news. All saints and sinners in the church share together in this gospel. The meal would be incomplete if even one of these was not at the table. It would not be good news if even one of these members were missing. I love that. Uh, Leslie Newbigin, I didn't put it on the screen, says it this way. None of us can be made whole till we are made whole together. I love that idea. We show up with hands and hearts full, ready to be emptied and then filled again. But our questions are typically off. Either they are wrongly considered. What can I get? Well, the answer is Jesus, but how do I get him? Usually we think of it, I sit down and I hear truth. I hear someone teach me. But Colossians says that we teach and admonish one another. Or we just never ask the right questions. What can I bring? When was the last time you asked that? What can I bring to church today? Who today has the Holy Spirit put on my heart to speak to? to bring a word of encouragement to, to just go to and ask how they're doing. Who am I praying for before I show up on a Sunday morning? I love that. That was one of Bob Coughlin's other questions at the end of chapter four. What can I bring? Who needs to hear Jesus in a fresh way? And that requires you listening to the spirit, abiding in the spirit Monday through Saturday to show up prepared for Sunday. It's like this. I can get a lot of things online, right? So you hear people all the time. Well, I'll show up to church when I need to. Um, It's a little bit like shopping. I can get a lot of things online, but I can't get everything online. You can't order alcohol online. They won't ship it to you. I tried. You, uh, (laughs) you You can't get a coffee online. You can get the ground sent to you, maybe some cold brew, uh, but nothing beats a face-to-face conversation. It's why coffee shops have become super huge in the city because uh, as some people call them, they're a third place. It's a place where you can be known, where you can have an experience that is tangible. Church is that. It is tangible. It's, it's audio, audible. It's visual. It's physical. It is an incarnating experience. In our gatherings, God is made real to meet real needs. It's uh, when I was in uh, Jacksonville for seminary the first time, I got food poisoning on the second night. God is hilarious. And uh, I, I obviously I'm in Jacksonville. I don't know where to turn to. And Jen's like, hey, we've got this app. It's called Doctor on Demand. And I was like, okay. So I, I use the app. They FaceTime me with the doctor. I'm like 
puking out the side of a car and I'm literally like turning the phone away and I'm like I don't feel good she's like I can see that and so she gave me some medication it helped um, by the spirit's power I rallied and, and was able to finish that week but let me tell you it's one thing to say I feel really sick here are my symptoms I'm sure you've all checked WebMD um, I, I couldn't get a full physical on doctor on demand one that'd be super awkward but two they can't do it like the doctor has to see you in person right this is the difference you need to see God God wants you to be in the gathering so that you could see him when people tell me and you've heard me say this when people tell me that they feel disconnected in our gatherings I tell them the same thing every time next time you pray next time you sing do it with your eyes open because if this is really the body of Christ as you look around the room you are seeing Jesus you are being ministered in, in a way that you need to be ministered to. And when you connect with somebody, you are ministering to them in a way they need to be ministered to. Amen? Amen. Amen. This is why our services require as much thought as they do, as much consideration as they do. This is why we repeat the gospel story every week. We do it in fresh ways, but we have a liturgy. We're coming up on a year since we did the handbook. I don't know if anybody's looked over it. It's been a long time. But there's a whole page there in the liturgy and the flow of the gospel that we follow. This is important for us. It continues to reorient us, to form us, to make us more like Christ. Our songs, our lyrics, our words and tone and blend, all these things matter. Blend we get, right, as musicians. We get when somebody is not blending, right? When people are like, a pocket, what's that? Like, we get that as musicians. We come together to make a chorus every week, right? And God takes us, some of us are in a place of the flesh where we have no rhythm, where we can't sing on key, and we tune ourselves to the heart of Christ, as Bonhoeffer might say. And this is why everything we do as the body of Christ is corporate. Kenneth Leach in his book, True Prayer, he says this, which is a pretty bold statement. And so hear me as I, as I explain it. There is no such thing as private prayer. Obviously, I don't mean that you should not have private devotional time or pray on your own. But when you are the body of Christ, your prayer is my prayer. My prayer is your prayer because your need is my need. Your tears are my tears. My joy is your joy. My intercession is your intercession, and all this is because my Savior is your Savior. This is the picture of the church. We share language, life, goals, work, pain, joy together, and we can't do that alone or infrequently. You ever start, try to start a TV show mid-season? Like everybody's raving about this show, and you're like, well, I'll just pick it up. You can't do it, especially now. There's so many layers on, it's not like Seinfeld where you could just watch any episode. Like you can't join in the middle. Have you ever moved and, and met a new group of friends and realized that there are years of inside jokes that you can never catch up on? What's the line from the office? I love inside jokes. I'd love to be a part of one someday. Right? Like, I love what Bob Coughlin says in his book. Being one in Christ is more than meeting regularly in the same room, but it isn't less. We need, first of all, as the worship team and expanded as, as Alamo Community Church to recover and to understand and to cherish what it means to gather together in worship. The main ingredient of the church and the final product are the same, unity. This is what Jesus prays for us, right? In the true Lord's Prayer in John, he prays that we might have joy, that we might be one as he is one in the Father. Humility and vulnerability destroy what Coughlin calls deceptive unity. I love that, deceptive unity. Deceptive unity is when you come to church on a Sunday morning and you feel like you have to keep it all together. Deceptive unity says don't cry in church. 
Or don't sing too loud because you might sing out of key. Or don't clap off beat. I don't want to disturb anyone. I don't want anyone to be uncomfortable. That is deceptive unity. That is not what we're called to be as the body of Christ. We're called to be messy. It's the difference between a quilt and a sheet, right? Like a sheet is, we have like white sheets on our bed, just plain white sheets. There's nothing to them. A quilt takes time. And often they tell stories. They look crazy sometimes, but some families like to make quilts. They require cutting and stitching. It's a long process, right? And it requires new pieces to be grafted on. And the story might never be fully told. This is what the church is called to be. No one is to be left behind in our worship. This is what's necessary for a worshiping church's final component. And that is working. Get used to the idea of mess. Yours and others. How many, again, how many of y'all were there last Sunday? We did the, uh, the name tag deal. That was pretty messy. But I loved it because it was our church. We should have this attitude when we show up on Sunday mornings. Expect the unexpected. We don't want to tame God. We couldn't if we tried. We don't want to tame what it looks like to experience him on a Sunday morning. And where the unexpected enters is into the stories of the people who come together. Everybody is bringing in a story with them. Maybe from their week, maybe from their life. They're bringing something in. And the story matters when you share it. Right? Have you ever had a great story that you just couldn't wait to tell somebody? Like, I've got to tell you what happened to me. Or a terrible movie you saw. You've got to hear about this movie. It's called The Room. Like, you, you, have, to, you have to share it, right? This is what the body of Christ is. And when you withhold that, you start to choke off a part of the body, right? You start to pinch the nerve. That's when body parts go numb and, and they die. This is not how you're meant to function in the body of Christ. Perfection has one place in the church, and that's in Jesus, not in us. People want purpose, and knowing that they have a place to bring their stories gives it to them. The church must be visible to itself. We must be visible to each other so that it might be visible to the world. And this is the last part. Psalm 34, uh, verses 13 through 14, they mention speech and action. These are learned and practiced traits for the benefit of the world for the work of the kingdom. Psalm 34 verse 5 says that we would have radiant faces. This is the language of testimony. It encompasses all activities. Just as no one is left behind, we learn that nothing is left behind. The church that weeps together, that waits together, is formed into the body of Christ so that we might show it to the world in everything we do. Jesus didn't come and pick parts of humanity to adopt. He adopted all of it. In the understanding that in becoming his body, all of our lives would become avenues of worship. Bob Coughlin in chapter 3 says that every word you say is worship. Psalm 34 would say every action is worship. Every word is worship. Every thought is worship. Relationships become possibilities for worship. Andy Crouch in his uh, foreword for... Uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary says this, the beautiful orthodoxy that undermines all our foolish secularizing is that endlessly surprising Christian doctrine, the incarnation. I love this. The word became flesh. The word went fishing. The word slept. The word woke up with morning breath. The word brushed his teeth, or at least he would have if the word had been a 21st century American instead of a first century Judean. This uniquely Christian belief is amazing, faintly horrifying, and life-changing. The incarnation is in, is totality. It's all of humanity that Jesus adopted. 
It had to be that way because we can't compartmentalize parts of who we are from God. He wants all of it. There is no such thing as the secular sacred divide if the spirit abides in you. There is no part of what you do that is an opportunity to become sacred, to show Jesus in the speech you say, in the the actions you do. This is, again, the language of sacrament when something common, natural, and normal becomes supernatural. What Jesus comes to do and what we do as his church is to renew our minds. It's literally what repentance means is to, to understand and to think a new way. And so Jesus offers a new perspective. What feels common and natural becomes supernatural. I love this quote. And it's the last one I'll share from uh, Alexander Schmerman. When we see the world as an end in itself, everything becomes itself a value and consequently loses all value because only in God is found the meaning, the value of everything. The world is meaningful only when it is the sacrament of God's presence. Our prayer is that we might see in all things the opportunity to be the body of Christ, to share who we know, to share more than knowledge about God, but to share the knowledge of God that comes from weeping together and trusting together and waiting together and being formed together. God, we thank you that you call us to be a church. And you call us to be Uh, more than what the world says we are. That in the mess of our lives, you find the pieces for your glory. And so we thank you that you form, that you reshape, that you redeem, that you restore. And we thank you that you offer us in that redemption, the opportunity to participate in that work, to see the world in a different light, to see as you do, to trust that the God who restored us is still in the work of restoration, is still in the work of redemption. And so today, God, as we remember and we reflect together on the gift given to us in salvation we couldn't earn, in eternal life that we couldn't secure for ourselves, God, I pray that you would continue to make us this body, that we would continue to be broken as you were broken. God, that we would continue to be poured out and to serve as you poured out, as you came to serve us. And so that we might in those things experience in greater ways the hope of the resurrection that we share together. I thank you for this church. I thank you for this ministry. God, I pray that you just continue to be the joy, be the joy that propels us forward into this next season as a church, into a new building, into all these new opportunities. God, I pray that your joy in your life would continue to be at the center of all of it. Bring us to humility and vulnerability so that together we might drink from the living water week in and week out. We thank you, God, and it's in the name of Jesus that we proclaim again and again together. Amen.